0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a political analyst, a lawyer, and a co-host of the podcast, Get Out the Bed. It's my pleasure to introduce today Joan Biskubic. She's the CNN Supreme Court analyst and the author of this book, Nine black robes inside the Supreme Court's drive to the right in its historic consequences. Now, before joining CNN, Joan was the editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters and was a Supreme Court correspondent for Washington Post and USA Today. She holds a law degree from Georgetown University and has written several books, including biographies of Supreme Court justices John Roberts, Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, and Sonia Sotomayor. Now, before we get started, if y'all have questions for Joan, please submit them in that YouTube chat, and we will get to them later in the program. Joan, welcome. And we've just talked about your illustrious history of writing autobiographies of Supreme Court justices. Can you just start by telling us why this one is a, is more of a comprehensive group picture of the, uh, of the Supreme Court? Thanks, Melissa.
0: And it's great to be with you and with everyone else from the Commonwealth Club. It's it's such an exciting time for the Supreme Court. And I could, at some point, maybe weave in just like what's going on right here now uh, in Washington, D.C., involving the court and issues percolating up this way uh, that I'm sure would be of interest to your audience. I had, you know, begun with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor back in 2005, very interested in her, and then uh, went to Antonin Scalia, then a political history of uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and finally, in 2019, I wrote The Chiefs. And I was, as I was casting about for my next project, because clearly I am addicted to writing about this court, beyond just my daily journalism, uh, I thought, you know, who? But there was no person that struck me as someone who was far enough along in his or her career that I could actually assess, and someone who I thought would be interesting enough. For audiences like yours, you know, um, there are some people who've been around for a while. But I thought, oh, I don't know how much more people want to know about them. So I, I, I got the idea of a group portrait. And what reinforced my idea of group portrait was what I had started to detect in terms of what was going on behind the scenes because of the Trump effect on the court. So I, in late 2019, early 2020, I pitched a proposal that to you know New York publishers that essentially would look at these justices as a group and but sort of also get their inside stories woven through, look at relations, who's up, who's down, how that affects rulings. But I really thought I'd have a much more interior look because I didn't expect any real bombshells in rulings. Huh. <laughs> well, I mean that was and then of course this was before COVID also. So not only does COVID happen, but then, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies in September of twenty twenty after i you know signed this contract, and suddenly we have Justice Amy Coney Barrett come on, and just she comes on in late october twenty twenty and by may twenty twenty one they've agreed to take the big abortion case, the Dobbs case, and that's when I contacted my publisher and said. No matter what deadline you might have thought I was going to make, we just have to put this off for another year because I have to see what they do with abortion. And that also became such a part of the story, Melissa.
1: Right. Well, you know, one of the really interesting things, about, there are many interesting stories in the book, but I just, I love how you kind of take us behind the scenes. There are some big picture conversations that, that you cover, but also really uh, intimate details about what it's like on the Supreme Court, which, as you point out, is, is such a secretive um, branch of the U.S. government, sort of broadly speaking. And you talk about uh, conferences and sort of how those work. And even for those of us who, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an attorney myself, but, you know, we just don't get that kind of, um, information. Can you talk a little bit about how, how the sort of sausage gets made, uh, that, that you bring to bear in the book? Sure. And, you know, a lot of people have no idea what goes into,
0: on in that conference room, because first of all, only the nine justices are allowed in there. Their law clerks, secretaries, any assistants are not allowed in. So it's nine sitting around a rectangular table. They're in these big black leather chairs with little, um, Brass nameplates on the back. The room is actually kind of small. It's distinguished by a black marble fireplace with a portrait of the great Chief Justice John Marshall hanging above it, and the U.S. Reports, uh, as you know well, those books uh, line the walls. So it's it's kind of a tight, intimate place. And I have I have worked very hard over the decades to find out exactly what goes on in there, and then also to find out what happens in the process afterward when you know the justices will take a preliminary vote after hearing oral arguments in a case and they'll take a preliminary vote going by seniority around the table and then though the real action starts but it's it's hardly the kind of action that it seems like cinematic, cinematic because it's a conversation through exchanged written drafts of opinions. Uh, that's how they keep most of their conversation going. There are a couple justices who do like to buttonhole each other in the, um, in the corridors or drop into offices, but mainly they are sending around draft opinions. They're sending around memos. They're negotiating over paragraphs. Uh, and they're, they're mainly you know doing the kind of work that any of us are familiar with to produce any kind of written document to try to get at least five people on board. But the really interesting things happen when suddenly somebody might want to switch a vote or somebody persuades somebody to add something that would actually make an important difference in the ruling and those kinds of uh, actions, I especially like to bear it out.
1: Well, the other thing that, that goes on, I mean, in addition to these, these conference meetings that are very secretive is the you, you write about the clerk network um, that really allows a lot of sort of communications to happen between justices and and sort of allows certain things to take shape can you talk a little bit about that because that was a really fascinating part of the book sure um,
0: you know and, and you you might have many lawyers in the uh, uh, audience as you are a lawyer uh, these these young law clerks are generally the the cream of the crop you know they they have they're people who uh, went to you know, premier law schools, mostly Ivy League law schools. They've been law clerks to lower court judges. They've uh, A lot of young lawyers consider this the golden ticket of the profession for a certain kind of uh, practice, mostly, you know, along the Acela corridor, as it's called out here, you know, the East Coast, but also, also in big cities out West, too. You know, people like to you know, tout credentials as a former Supreme Court law clerk. So it's a very competitive position and each justice, you (laughs) know, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Each justice gets uh, four law clerks and they count on those clerks to help uh, do research, help write opinions, help uh, come up with different legal ideas, but they also getting to your question about the network, they count on them to keep their ear to the ground. And some justices, uh, like Clerk Intelligence uh, more than others, uh, and I I just loved one one episode when I was reconstructing what happened in the Title VII case known as Bostock uh, versus Clayton County. That was the one w- in which the justices decided by a six three vote to expand uh, the reading of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to cover uh, uh, gay and transgender workers. So that was that was a big ruling and uh you know Chief Justice John Roberts went with the majority at the outset of that one. He had a couple of misgivings on some parts of the decision, but he basically wanted to expand uh the interpretation of Title VII. and I asked one justice how how aware uh they were about this. Um, and I found out that it was the clerk network who had passed on that his clerks were saying that the chief is open to this, by the way, I just caught myself as I was trying to describe something. And I'll explain why I caught myself. I try to avoid pronouns of these justices. And I'll tell you why there are only nine of them, nine of them. And, uh, all the females are of course on the left and, uh, we've got five males and one uh, female on the right. And sometimes, you know, I, I have access. To to many of the justices under lots of different terms, but often the terms involve not revealing who told me what. So I tend to be very careful about if I'm if I'm referring to an, an unnamed justice, watching my pronouns because I could give a lot away. Given <laughs> given <laughs> given the the makeup of uh, male and female, and also left and right, everything else up there. There's just, Uh, you know, some people want to expand the court, you know, for for reasons of ideology and politics. I wouldn't mind expanding it to expand my source base. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't want we don't want to to have any issues. I'm sure it took you so long to get access to those sources, okay. uh, to get them to trust you. Uh, we we certainly wouldn't want to have any any impact <laughs> on that. Um, and well, so one of the things, and and I've got an audience question about this, and I have a question about this too. Is as we're talking about this, and people do take this very very seriously. Being a clerk, being a justice, oh, yeah. of course. So uh, how and then you said before you didn't think that a clerk or a justice leaked the Dobbs decision. What's your take on on what actually happened there and and how did that impact? You read a little bit about how that impacted the court and their um, cohesion. Great
0: question. So why I unlike many other people think it wasn't a justice or a law clerk. I've just known some them for so long and I consider them to be mainly rule followers. You know mm-hmm. and. and those justices have ways to uh, exert public pressure on colleagues uh, that, that doesn't necessarily involve leaking a 98-page document. And they're also institutionalists in, in, in many regards. So I just I just don't believe uh, a justice did it. And in terms of law clerks, it's the same thing, Melissa. You know, this is a, a crowd that got to where they are mainly by following the rules, mainly by doing what others thought it was right to do you know they're super smart people but they also were doing things you know um uh by the book so to speak and so that's one reason i think that the other reason i think is that it's a big building it's got a lot of people had access to that opinion you know probably more than 100 and it was probably copied a lot frankly that was a february 10th draft and it became public on may 2nd and i think i think politico got it you know at least a week before then. And I don't believe political knows exactly how it got it. I mean, I, I, I have never asked those reporters and I don't intend to because they they got something that was, you know, amazing. It was a sensational scoop. So and I wouldn't want to say, you know, exactly how did you guys get it so I can trace it back? You know, like I'm not going to do it. And the court itself, of course, has had no luck figuring out who did it. They have many more resources than me. But I I actually think it might have changed hands. It might have gotten out through a, a different kind of full-time employee there. It could have been excell- accidentally left somewhere. And someone realized the value of this document and got it into the hands of Politico. And what I say is I don't know how it got out. I, I, know, I know just about as much about how it got out today as I did on May 2nd. You know, I have lots <laughs> of theories, but none of which I could actually attest but I do not intend to go to my grave not knowing. But <laughs> but I do know what the effect was. The effect was to lock in the five justices on the right and to secure the kind of language that Justice Samuel Alito was using. I did not think, when I saw the draft on May 2nd, I knew that there were five justices who had voted that way. I had known it from my own reporting. and I. But I also knew that the chief... Justice John Roberts was trying to pick off a voter or two, to, to for his his um, decision to uphold the Mississippi ban on abortion at fi- um, at 15 weeks, but not to go so far as to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. So I knew that's what he was trying to do, and uh, and I didn't think he was making any headway. But when I was reporting on that, you know, just quietly behind the scenes, you know, we still had like six weeks left. Uh, And I think, you know, a lot of things had changed in June. June is a, there's a lot of action behind the scenes in June. And, um, but once everything was public, I I think that uh, it made it harder for him to make any headway with either Justices Kavanaugh or Barrett. And then the other thing that happened that also surprised me was the tone of the rhetoric. I do think um, Justice Alito's tone was really strong, more strident than I think that Justices Kavanaugh or Barrett might have definitely might, would have written themselves. But I thought maybe they might have bargained for a different kind of language, even though they were ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. But that didn't happen either. And one of the reasons that might not have happened is that they felt, well, the thing's public. Will it look like we caved to public pressure in any way if there are you know switch votes or if our uh, the tone of the opinion changes? So it, it basically preserved um, on May second, what was what had gone on up to that point, and did not allow any real action behind the scenes through to June twenty fourth when the decision was released.
1: Well, we have a question here. Let's give you sure. a Let's say you're at a Starbucks near the Supreme Court building and you yeah. recognize a, a clerk and you know, maybe you wave and they've got their coffee and then they get up and leave and they, but they leave a folder behind. And in that <laughs> folder is a draft of the Dobbs decision. Do you report on it? We have a question. If you did get an early decision draft, would you report it? Would you make it public? Especially now that you know what it would do, <laughs> we know well, it, I love that I love like that it. question. I love that question because we talked about it here
0: now mm-hmm. um it, I have gotten early information over the years, but I tended to uh, but I've never gotten anything as extensive as that, but I tend to use my early information to then reconstruct a case because I'm so aware of how much votes can shift, so mm-hmm. sometimes I'll write that you know it, it, you know the farthest out go is it looks like they're leaning this way. Uh, but that, uh, you know, there are more weeks to come, but I want to tip off readers to where I think things are going, but, but often I'll just hold my fire. I'll just hold what I've gotten because I'll, cause I'll want to then use it to tell people, okay, we know how they ruled. Let me show you how they got there. And let me show you how, for example, the chief switched votes, or let me show you who was persuaded this way or that way. So, so that's how I'll use it. And my bosses with whom I've worked on those kinds of stories, uh, we have at times had to weigh whether we, um, when we when we come in with information, if we've gotten something that no one else has, when do we use it? And as I said, we've tended to wait. Now, so say I got access to that opinion. Say I was fortunate enough to have it delivered to a secure Dropbox of sorts, or find at the Starbucks, or whatever. And I brought it back and I said, look at this. And I was able to tell my bosses, this looks real based on you know some of the intelligence I've gotten from people inside the court. What do we do? And what we have decided, even though it, it, mostly we've always held stuff until we knew exactly how everything unfolded, we, we have said to ourselves that we would have run it because we feel like, and, and I think Politico make, made the right decision. You know, I, I know what happened. And I know what the effect of it was, but you know, we're in the news business and this was such big news. It was just such big news what they were going to do. And um that it would have it
1: it it would have been hard not to run it. Honestly, I thought it was fake. When I first heard about it, I was like, that can't be real. Cause it's so <laughs> unprecedented to have this happen. And you just, you just, you like to think that, uh, that they've got really good security protocols, but at the same time, my experience with judges and probably yours too is that they're not uh, uh, lovers of technology, let's just—they don't—they don't like a lot of passwords and like you know uh, the kind of authenticator apps and stuff like that. So, um, it, in some ways, it's surprising that something hadn't gotten out before with everyone sending drafts back and forth. You know, Melissa, you just nailed it. First of all, I do have to say that before I got on this uh, call with
0: you. I had one of the younger people in the office come in here with me. I said, "Just help me get set up, okay? I just have to make this work. I've, it's just been such a big day. There are a million stories going on. Can you just help me get on?" And and I am sure justice after justice after justice does stuff like that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to. Uh, I used to not be as old as some of the justices, but now that they've gotten so young, I am as old as some of the justices, but still I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, you know, they're practically still writing with quill pens. I mean, they do know how to, they do know how to do basic word processing, but you're right. Uh, you know, just, it's just um, kind of a younger person's game in terms of tech, but with the exception, I should say of, of all people, Clarence Thomas, who is uh, right now, the eldest of the group, he actually is very tech savvy, very tech savvy. He was the first one to telecommute. Yeah, yeah. i Are you to aware of anything. with your
1: contacts in the um, in the Supreme Court? Have they told you about um, additional security measures being put in yes. place? Yes. Oh, yeah. This well, system. they're
0: yes, they're definitely. You know, they're definitely trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. Can you imagine? You know, I I recreate as you see at the start of that final chapter that moment where they all had to sit on camera in front of so many people for the John Paul Stevens Memorial, just within days of when they had found out about this leaked draft and before it was public. And they had to act like everything was okay. And I think, how could they have done that? You know, how, but they um, immediately, right, as soon as they found out about it, like a few days before political it, they immediately started trying to lock down computers and do different things. And in the Marshall's report, uh, that she put out in January about you know some of the very loose, loose practices they had going about burn bags and number of copies and tracing copies and all that. They have tried to fix that.
1: Okay, well that's that's really good to know. I know some of our <laughs> viewers are are concerned, and but you also do talk about um, the collegiality among the justices. I think this is so important. I believe it was Sotomayor. I could be wrong about this. Who you quote as saying um, something like you know I've got to work with these people for the rest of my life. Essentially, so I, you know, they they do try to um, to get along personally, um, but things like a leak, uh, COVID, you point out, there are some strains on some of those personal relationships. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the need for them and the history of them and and what's happening currently? Sure, I, and I think that's a great question because
0: look, you know, think of the small groups that we're all part of and how we, you know, we spend more time with some of our colleagues sometimes than with our family and. And they always say they are the only nine individuals who understand the pressures of this job. You know, the, the last stop in terms of determining the law of the land, the the outside pressures, the people second guessing them. So they have kind of a, a fellow feeling that way. And also the fact that they're appointed for life. They know that they have to. But, uh, you know, as Clarence Thomas himself said after the Dobbs leak, you know, The justices were looking over each other's shoulder. And then he drew a contrast between the Rehnquist Court that he had served under for several years and the Roberts Court. And he said, you know, that they used to feel more like a family, a dysfunctional family, he said, but more like family. And remember, Justices uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia had this fabulous friendship despite their differences on the law. And you just don't have as much of that anymore. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was great as real social glue, trying to always get the justices to, you know, go on outings together, play bridge together. She was the one who started the practice of having lunch together every day after oral arguments. She was just, and, and, you know, she came to the court as a, after being a politician in Arizona, uh, a state legislator, and she sort of understood, she understood the importance of personal connections.
1: Right. I mean, you did go all the way back to, you know, John Marshall with you know, making sure the justices live together, essentially. And so we get even some of the more um, landmark decisions like Marbury versus Madison. People forget it was unanimous, you know, I mean, he really worked, uh, you know, ideally there's this, there's this great bedrock of, of justices getting along, but you write about how the telecommuting actually prevents oh, yeah. that personal, um, personal interaction um, that really helps, you know, the justices to, to stay connected.
0: That's right. And, you know, even now, even though they've re- returned to the bench and they've returned to their chambers, uh, just like a lot of other workers, uh, they, some of them have gotten accustomed to not coming in as regularly. And that's I think that has diminished some of the, the collegiality.
1: Well, one of the thing, one of the times that we saw what maybe was collegiality, maybe it was something else, was around the issue of Jenny Thomas, and um, there were there was a lot of reporting around her support for Donald Trump in various ways, uh, and people calling for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself and for new ethics rules, etc. And it seems like the justices really sort of circled the wagons there, and you know, really, you know, said nothing to see here. We're not going to go after our fellow justice for this, or we're not going to create these things. But now we've got issues regarding. Clarence Thomas personally, uh, and and trips that he took with a, with a, a friend um, who also happens to be very very wealthy um, that have come out um, in ProPublica. What do you make of how the justices might approach that issue? And are we really getting to the limits of what they're willing to do or or stay quiet on when it comes to the actions of their fellow justices?
0: Yeah, you know, so many people say, you know, won't this pressure the court or Justice Thomas to do something? And as much as this latest episode about all the lavish trips that uh, he took on the dime of um uh, Republican billionaire harlan crow i it, it's gotten everybody talking it's gotten everybody scrutinizing the court more. but I just wonder what will happen first of all, they have kind of a hands off approach to each other on this topic. Clarence Thomas even put out in his statement he said he talked to some colleagues and they advised him to not report those trips um, the chief justice has said nothing about that episode members of Congress are clamoring about it say you know this is this is ridiculous you take these really fancy trips and get all this great you know food lodging travel on super yachts and private jets and you don't think you need to report that so you know that will change uh, in uh in part because the, the judicial conference has recently made clear that those things should uh should be documented on the annual financial disclosure reports but you know the justices answer to no one as the chief justice has said uh they're, they are different from the political branches in that they are appointed for life and the only way to get rid of them is through impeachment by the US house and conviction by the senate and that has never happened so, I think, yeah. but the only time, but uh, as some of the audience probably remember or, or know of, in 1969, Abe Fortas was pressured to resign because of some uh, allegations of financial irregularities. But that's the only time, only time in, you know, more than two centuries. So uh, I think things will continue. I, You know, the chief is concerned about the appearance of the court. But he can't put out a, a set of rules or a ethics code that will apply to only five of them and not four others. You know, like you just, they have to be, I believe uh, they are trying to be unanimous on something and maybe they will come up with with um, with some sort of new practices that are formal. You know, just just so your viewers know, they they say they abide by the code of conduct that the uh, that lower court judges are covered by, but, you know, they're, they're the only ones who, police themselves. And if you had a complaint, like if you, as a lawyer, Melissa, had seen something that one of the justices did and you wanted to file a complaint, they have absolutely no mechanism, no grievance mechanism for uh, any claim against a justice the way you could have against a a lower court judge.
1: Well, I mean, with such an important uh, focus being the legitimacy of the court itself, um, uh, it's not clear how long that's going to Stay the status quo. It seems like there are concerns. You read a lot about Justice Roberts, yeah. especially being uh, being concerned about the perception of the court and about how even over time that has changed. Can you talk a little bit? You, you you do talk about the Gallup polls and just generally people's trust in the court and how that is that is really front and center in a way that we haven't seen for quite a while.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, lots of polls led by Gallup, you know, and, and others that are reputable have documented a real plummeting of public approval for the Supreme Court. Now, the chief says, oh, it's just because they don't like some of our rulings. But I think I think it's not quite the whole story there because, you know, it's it's dropped enough that it's not just a bunch of liberals who might not like the Dobbs decision or independents or centrists who might not like the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision. I think people you know, feel like the court has grown so political and polarized. Donald Trump said he was going to name justices who would overturn Roe, and he named three justices who voted to overturn Roe. The The alignment right now between justices on one side and another and their their political identifications is like just a little too neat for people, I think. You know, the three liberals were appointed by Democratic presidents, the uh The six conservatives were appointed by Republican presidents and it used to not be that way. You know, Justice John Paul Stevens, who stepped down in 2010, had been appointed by uh, Gerald Ford in 1975 and he and uh, Justice Stevens turned out to be quite the liberal.
1: Well, uh, you do talk about uh, I mean, you just were mentioning how difficult, if not impossible it is to to remove a justice Um, but. There is an issue and maybe the justices are more aware of it now that um, we had the issue with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her untimely death and how that impacted uh, the Dobbs decision and and really came at the end of what people had. Some people, even maybe President Obama, had been trying to. (laughs) <laughs> I yeah. urged her to do a little yeah. earlier so we could get a, 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 a liberal in her place. Can you, you right very touchingly about um, Justice Ginsburg. Can you talk a little bit about that process and maybe how that has impacted the way other justices are viewing their own tenure on the court?
0: Yeah, no, that, that is a, that's going to be a lesson that they'll all remember. Okay, so I, I'll just tell people what happened in 2013. By then, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has just turned 80 years old. She's just turned 80 years old and she's been on the court since 1993. So she's had a a long run and President Obama invites her to lunch, a private lunch. And I got a tip about that. So I followed up with her. And at first I could tell she was reluctant to talk to me about it, but then she said something about, well, I suppose the White House logs might be available. And I thought, I'm not even sure if they are for this one, but go ahead and tell me now anyway. And she said, you know, so he invited her over. She starts describing the soup they had, the fish they had, uh, that they ate. And it it was, you know, this is just typical Ginsburg who I I cannot um, imitate her at all, Melissa, because she talked so slowly and deliberately that I made in a way that I admired, um, but that there's no way I can mimic. But as she was talking to me, she mentioned that, She hardly finished her soup when the president had basically finished his entire meal because she was eating so slowly. And she was, then she said, I guess I was done because he had better things to do anyway. But um, (laughs) the meal aside, I said, Do you think he was fishing for information about your retirement? And she said, No, I don't think he was fishing. I think he invited me because I like him and he likes me. I found out later. That um, that indeed he was interested in her retirement plans, but just did not have the courage to say, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do?" And do you <laughs> need a little nudge. And is there anything else you'd like to do? You know, you're going to be eighty. You know what? are you you are eighty. You know, any any way I can help you here? You know. And <laughs> so what happens? That was um, in summer of. Uh, oh no, that was in uh, you know in in 2013. And then what happens in 2014? You know, the Republicans take back the Senate. And, you know, and you have a Republican majority through to all of Donald Trump's tenure. And I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like many people, thought, well, she just had to hold on till the end of 2016 because Hillary Clinton surely will beat Donald Trump. And of course, that didn't happen. So then she had to hang on until the end of 2020. And she almost got there. But in September,
1: that's when she died and just what 55 days before the um before the end of the uh, the Trump administration i mean really just and, right. right in time right in time to uh to potentially change the the Dobbs
0: decision if i remember reading. Oh that. that's exactly right and one thing you know to go to the first part of your question about how other justices recall this and you know just how how searing it has been for especially liberals um what the fate of justice Ginsburg You know, there's there's a certain degree of anger out there about her decision to stay on. Uh, And because because it has been so consequential, the fact that that she died and was succeeded by someone who is very strongly a conservative, the opposite of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that has affected Dobbs. Um, That has affected more than just the Dobbs abortion decision. Plenty of rulings, But as to the Dobbs one, you're exactly right. That Mississippi appeal. All the papers came in in early September 2020 while Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive. They weren't scheduled to take up the petitions, the petition until um, the end of the month. And by that point, she was gone. And uh, they postponed consideration of it for several weeks. And then in May of 2020, with Justice Barrett now sitting in one of those big black leather chairs with the little brass nameplate, uh, deciding to take the Mississippi case. And the rest is very consequential history.
1: And you describe a lunch with uh Justice Breyer, uh a very uh very vivid, I can picture it in New Hampshire, uh, where you, you went to visit him and you guys had a had a chat about and he was he seemed to be very uh conscientious about making sure he didn't yeah. further change the makeup of the court.
0: That's right. That's right. And so we're in twenty twenty one and a lot of people were putting pressure on him to leave then. And he just he felt he had two years at least because he thought he had until 2022 before the Senate makeup changed. And it turned out that the Democrats held the Senate, but you know he didn't want to take a chance on that. But it was 2021, and he was under a lot of pressure. And I um, uh, I love doing this. I just flew up to see him in uh, New Hampshire at his summer home, and uh, I was very excited about getting him to talk to me because he was very helpful in in many regards. But he um, I remember he he clearly thought he could, he had enough time and he did, he bet. And he bet correctly. She, she did not, her bet did not come in. You know, I mean, she lost that bet. Uh, it, it, obviously the conditions changed from when she first thought she uh, was taking a risk, but uh, Justice Breyer wasn't going to take a big risk. He took maybe a small risk. But then, I don't know if you remember, right away in January of 2022 is when he announced his retirement. So he wanted to make sure that he gave President Biden plenty of time to uh, find his successor, as he did in Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, a former Breyer clerk. So it that one, that one worked out. And I think, I actually think Justice Breyer was fine about how long he stayed. Uh, it was a really tough last term for him because, like, he lost on everything. But He's now, you know, teaching and writing and uh, traveling and having a pretty good life.
1: Oh, excellent! Yeah, so it's a really it's a really neat story about just sort of him, a chief justice just going down to the to the restaurant. You know, it, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great visual. Um, and so we do have some questions here from the audience. One person um, wants to know, um, and and this is actually a question I, I had for later, but we'll go ahead and ask it now. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's what concerns you most about the future of the Supreme Court? Because you make it clear in the book that um, that a, as the dissenting justices in the Dobbs decision, you you don't think that the court is done with overruling prior precedents and and doing other things. So, right. can you talk a little bit about what's actually coming, or what and what you think might be coming uh, later? Sure. And I think
0: these are things that. Um some in your audience can watch for, they uh, right now are considering a major decision, a major case involving racial affirmative action on uh, campuses from Harvard and University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And that's an area where I think we're going to see a reversal of some precedent there also. So that's a big case. We, we still have some uh, religious discrimination cases coming down uh, the pike, uh, more voting rights cases. What's interesting, we are in April and we have gotten no big rulings, nothing major and nothing even like uh, better than really small minor. I mean, we they are so behind on decisions. And I think it's because (laughs) I, you know, that's a good question. And I think it's because they're really at odds. Mm -hmm. I think you're just you're just uh, I'm sensing much more dissension behind the scenes. I think June is going to be brutal for them, but uh, they have issued so few, so few opinions of note. And one thing that was very much preoccupying me today, and by the time many people see this video, maybe the case will have resolved itself. But right now, moving toward them is the dispute over medication abortion. Um, Judge Kesmerick in um, in Texas. Ruled on just a few days ago, from when we're taping this, uh, to say that the FDA approval of uh, one of the drugs that go into the two-part uh, medication abortion protocol uh, was was not properly approved by the Food and Drug Administration. It was just an incredibly uh, strong opinion against the government. Uh, the government has appealed it to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, for those of you watching here live now, that just happened like just an hour ago, and was tying me up significantly, but but that's just one piece of what's about to happen. That case was is headed toward the Supreme Court. And what I was going to say is that the justices could maybe handle that uh without hearing oral arguments, but lately they have been trying to actually um not use their so-called shadow docket, emergency docket as much and actually hold hold arguments and get full briefing on cases of such magnitude as
1: medication abortion
0: surely is
1: did you get a sense that that's that maybe because there was such a public outcry over some Iranian i think so i think so a,
0: a public outcry and then some of the justices themselves uh justice elena kagan complained to her colleagues in an opinion about the, the quote shadow docket and you know basically saying we're we're making big decisions without the transparency of oral arguments and full briefing and and in such a rushed fashion wants to make any decision in such a rushed fashion especially one that has could have such consequences
1: um okay right and you do write in the book for for those of y'all listening and watching um there there's some great discussion in the book about the justices approach to gerrymandering and um those issues that are probably going to become more and more important uh as we get closer and closer to the next election they may be weighing in on right. that, on several of those as, as well that could also be really controversial um uh another question here um when you started covering the supreme court what surprised you the most oh
0: gosh it has alas been many, many years ago, (laughs) I first started covering (laughs) that. You know, I loved going up there. I mean, again, you know, just as much as I'm addicted to writing these books, I, I keep changing news organizations, but never changing beats. (laughs) I just really enjoy the, the atmosphere of the Supreme Court, trying to figure out the stories behind the stories of the cases, uh, when I first started, I think the very first oral argument I saw might've been in late 87, early 88. And it was such a different court. I remember thinking, God, I can't, you know, some of these old men, I can't tell from each other, you know, you just, it was now we've got such a diverse bench. It's, it's easy to keep them straight, but it's, it, it, you know, it's steeped in such history that I can appreciate. And, uh, i I like that one case builds built upon another case, built upon another case, so I enjoy that about it too. I guess um, in terms of surprises, um, you know how fluid I learned how fluid the process is behind the scenes. I also learned how no matter how much I find out, there's so much more I don't know. And there's so much more that the justices themselves don't know. You know, you, uh, Melissa, you know, since you've read it, you know that there are a couple instances where I talk about switched votes and pacts between certain justices. And those are very hard to ferret out. And, and you know, sometimes I can get information from former clerks. Sometimes I get information from justices. But I've found that uh, sometimes these pacts are made just between two justices and the others don't know quite why they agreed the way they agreed. And you know, when I discovered the double switch votes in um, that Chief Justice John Roberts engaged in for in the Obamacare case of uh, 2012, uh, you know, I I remember talking to many justices about that because that was a case that I really wanted to recreate uh, after the after the fact. And there was a lot of bafflement still on the part of some of the justices about what exactly had happened and why. So, uh, you know, I don't know much about, you know, you think you don't know what's going on. I know I don't know the full story of what's going on. But some of the justices themselves are like, what happened? Yeah.
1: Are they unnecessarily secretive? I mean, you you do write about how they're you know it's you know you ask what kind of post its do you use and they're like no we're kidding I'm I'm, I'm making that no, up no it seems like but it's almost like that yeah
0: <laughs> yeah oh the easiest questions I can see why they wouldn't want um, the specifics of their deliberative process to be released and I, I I get that I get that especially since we saw what happened with Dobbs I I understand that entirely but little things like exactly what kind of format. W- are you going to use for the um, teleconference oral arguments now that you're in COVID? You know, what are you going to do? Can't tell you that. Uh, how many votes does it take to summarily reverse, uh, you know, in a, a lower court decision without oral arguments? And, you know, I had, I found out that was six. You know, I, I find out things, but, you know, what's, why can't people know that? Why wouldn't, you know, what's so hard about that? Or the, the other thing that that really uh can irk me and my colleagues is they don't want to tell you ahead of time where they're going to be speaking. <laughs> like you're out of, you're out and about so little and we really want to see you so at least give us a heads up so we can buy a plane ticket you know. <laughs> so so those kinds of things that I think I don't I actually don't understand why they don't want to be more helpful on the easy stuff because it would just buy them a little bit more goodwill. I don't think that they are def they're Many of them just feel like if they had heard me say why don't they why aren't they interested in obtaining more goodwill they'd think we're not in the business of obtaining more goodwill we're not in the business of trying to educate you or others we're in the business of deciding cases end of story
1: that's how I think many of them feel but they are aren't they I mean you know I I think so they don't have an army like you know
0: like (laughs)
1: exactly of
0: course that's what I think why don't you you know why don't you want to Help public understanding of what you're all about. Why don't you, you know, engage more? And you're always gonna, you're not gonna like the c- critics on both ends. You're not gonna like a lot of the people in the media. You don't even have to like someone like me. I get that, but can you just answer the most basic questions so that people don't get things wrong? You know, I, I always, I'll put it in story. I like when I, um, you probably saw that CNN excerpted. Um, three of the kind of scoopiest sections of the book. Uh, you know, and we did a lot of TV and and uh, digital uh, attention around those. And in the one about uh, justices, uh, the chief justice working with Anthony Kennedy on a pair of gay rights cases, like I, I included a paragraph that said, it is hard to find out what really happened. And, you know, this is this is how we find out. And it's limited because you have to, you know, because some other justices might not know. And I'm always very wary about being too chamber-centric, you know, getting information from one or two chambers and not the others. So, you know, we often will, we we make clear to readers as, when we can the, the limitations. And, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I had to put in the story, you know, the court declined comment, the court declined comment, Chief Justice John Roberts declined to comment again. That's why, you know, when we did hear from Clarence Thomas on his explanation on, the travels with Harlan Crow. It was at least a step forward, but it was interesting that he said, "You know, they essentially told me not to report him." But who, you know, that's then if you go back and you say, "Okay, well, who exactly?" Well, that's all we're saying about that. You know, yeah, who's they?
1: <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: right. Who's they? Who's they is exactly right. You probably saw in I, in my acknowledgments, I sort of mentioned, you know, in addition to thanking all sorts of people in my life who indulged this pastime of mine. I mentioned how I've always had a mantra about the Supreme Court. This is your Supreme Court, but there was another mantra that had always, that more recently has been swirling in my head, uh, or another kind of line that I've thought of, and that came from when uh, a court official said to me when I was asking an incredibly easy question, all things considered, if we had wanted you to know that, we would have told you that. And I thought, what in, like, why have that attitude? You are you are part of the government. You are. You know, you have a, a public face. So, anyway, you. Can, but, but as I always do say, they it, it, one thing that will get them together is they will close ranks against press inquiries.
1: The one thing they can agree on, sadly. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, we do have a question here about about the justices and harassment. I mean, so there is, I mean, to some degree, you know, I don't blame them for not wanting to talk to the public. It has not yeah. gone uh, particularly swimmingly every time they've had interactions and right. I'm thinking in particular, the, um, the attempt on justice Kavanaugh. And I right. exactly. said that he received death threats as well after, after the decision was the Dobbs decision was leaked. And there was, you know, this idea of among, you know, maybe some certain handful of, of folks that, you could, uh, you could stop the ruling by, you know, by eliminating or attacking one of the justices to, to change the, um, the, the decision lines. And so I remember seeing video of justice Kavanaugh's house. uh, Uh And, and I was surprised at that. You just sort of walk out the front door and there's the sidewalk. I remember thinking like, you should be living in a volcano, uh, you know, inside of a mountain. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's kind of a, and I don't know why I should be so surprised, but uh, but they actually, you know, are, are somewhat, have traditionally at least been able to sort of go through the world, stop by a Starbucks, but that seems to be changing.
0: Yeah, you know, it, a lot of people didn't know what most of them looked like. I'll never forget during Bush v. Gore. A lot of people kept saying to me, "I just saw Chief Justice Rehnquist. I just saw Chief Justice Rehnquist. I, you know, like because he looked pretty regular, and people would mix them up. And many of the justices, you know, could go about in the world without being noticed. Uh, but not, not now. And especially after Dobbs. And I, I would not minimize uh, the public threat that was to Justice Kavanaugh and that the other justices do feel. And they live, uh, you know, I, because I live in the northwest part of D.C. I'm, I'm close to where uh, Chief Justice John Roberts and um, Justice Kavanaugh live. And, you know, we're talking kind of normal residential areas. Uh, most of them live, you know, a few of them who live a little bit further out have enough property that they can, they've got, you know, defensible space there, you know. But, um, but some of them just live in regular old homes. And, you know, uh, justices, Kagan and uh, Sotomayor live closer into the city. And, you know, so you you just have um, people trying to go about their lives. And many of them still can go about their lives. But obviously there's just been uh, there was constant picketing and demonstrating at the homes of uh, Justice Alito, Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, the chief to some extent. And I'm not sure, I am actually not sure if uh, Neil Gorsuch got as much. He lives a little bit further out.
1: Okay, interesting. Well, I mean, do they have Secret
0: Service detail? or Oh, Mm -hmm. it's not Secret Service, but they do have court detail. And now I think it's like 24 hours. Yeah, around the clock. Yeah, they definitely have, they they had tight security even before the Dobbs leak, but now they have uh, pretty consistent uh, nonstop security.
1: Good to know. Um, and well, one of the things you do talk about in the book to get back to the horse trading issue and sort of how interesting and, and difficult it is to kind of untangle that it, a number of your stories revolve around justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And, um, but does he still, is he still able to do that now that he's sort of outnumbered? I mean, now that you got Amy Coney Barrett really changed. The dynamic of him being the the middle, uh, uh, as it were. I mean, I know he's not a centrist, yeah. but, um, but at least he was in a, a position to really swing things. And now he can, as we've seen, be, him be outvoted. Uh, what has that done to the ability of the justices to, to kind of negotiate and the chief justice to, to try to, to do what he feels is right? Yeah, no, it, he had a very strong hand especially
0: in the, uh, months between when Justice Kennedy stepped down in 2018 and Amy Coney Barrett came on in late 2020 because he was right smack at the center. And, you know, he's got the power of assignment too. And he's a very persuasive individual. Uh, he had argued 39 cases before the Supreme court and, you know, just has a very strong, smart, strategic sense in dealing with people. Uh, but and he still has all those things but he has five to his right so he has to essentially join them to work with them he doesn't want to be a consistent dissenter that's for sure because if he's if he dissents he he can't control the assignment of the opinion so if he is in the majority at least he gets to assign the opinion and he can try to work with his colleagues to maybe not go as far as they want to go but or maybe it will encourage him to go further than he might have at another time. So he still has tools, but not as many as he had before. And certainly, as we saw on, you know, such a culture war issue as abortion rights, uh, those tools failed him.
1: Um, and now, look, we know that the three of the justices that you write about um, were appointed by um, Donald Trump, and he's got his own legal issues uh issues for now um it's a little bit complicated there right because they they have sided with the president on certain things but but certainly not uh when it came to say the january sixth issues and and, and other election related issues in in twenty twenty so can you talk a little bit about sort of how that how that has, has shaken out even though trump calls him my my justice <laughs>
0: yeah he okay um, so uh in the early years of the trump administration his his policies were were affirmed by this court uh, by what was then a five-justice majority. But in part, that was because they were conservative policies that these the conservative majority wanted. Uh, and I think that individually, they might not have been crazy about Donald Trump, even those three who were named by him, but that they liked where he was coming from on issues of um, cultural and social policy issues, as well as The strong emphasis that uh, Donald Trump and Don McGahn, his White House counsel, had to roll back the so-called administrative state to diminish uh, regulations, and they were they were definitely on board with that. So they were siding with the Trump administration, but they were mainly uh, advancing their own their own idea of what uh, uh, of limited government. So I think that the Donald Trump's arguments. Were embraced for a long time now. Donald Trump, the person, especially after the election, when it was clear that he did not win, uh, they were not—they were not going to be in the camp that uh, went down with him. That's for sure.
1: And we've seen him. mean you do write about this, but we've seen it now again, um, even daily, um, about how his—you know—Donald Trump's approach to legal issues is to really just. Go for the judge uh, when exactly?
0: Yeah, as as people remember, you know uh, the indictment up in Man- with the Manhattan grand jury is is uh, fairly fresh right now as we speak. And one of his first complaints was uh, that the judge hates me, and he uses, he uses such personal language. I remember one time when the Supreme Court ruled against his administration, he he tweeted, "Do you get the impression the Supreme Court doesn't like me?" And then, uh, you know, this thing with the Manhattan judge where he said, this judge hates me, you know, because of how the judge had handled a a, a Trump uh, organization case. So, you know, it's all personal to him. And then he goes after people personally.
1: Yeah. Uh, But does it work? I mean, it seems to me this is his M.O. And he, in his mind, this is the right approach. And either he hasn't sort of changed this tack since, you know, his earliest days Going after um, you know, a Mexican a judge who, who's of Mexican right. heritage. I mean, it's years ago, and now, he, now here we are, still doing the same thing. Is is there what is there a win for him? And in, in this, I, I, this is. I don't think there's a win for him, but
0: there's a loss all around. Because as the chief will say, is that 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 then gets into the public atmosphere, and people start to think. That judges are ruling based on politics, personal preference, ethnicity, whatever. You know, it, it, he's he's so uh, persistently tried to undermine the independence of the judiciary. You know, in part with some appointments, but also through that rhetoric. And I think that it it has a cost. That first of all, I do think the court has ruled in a way that makes people doubt. Um, uh, this kind of non-partisan neutrality, that people really feel like politics has infected the court. But then you also have the rhetoric from a man who lots of people still believe in, Donald Trump, saying essentially you really can't look at these people as neutral arbiters. They are motivated by politics. They're motivated by their dislike of me. They're motivated by things that are not the law and the facts of a case. And I think that's definitely out in the atmosphere. You know, each time Donald Trump, you know, has some episode where he's more and more in the public eye and people think, you know, now what will happen? Now what will happen? But he still has a lot of supporters and his message that a lot of supporters keep listening to this drumbeat of the judiciary is not independent. The judiciary is not fair. The judiciary is just a bunch of political types Uh Mostly liberals who are against me, as he would say, and uh, but and I think that that gets communicated.
1: Um, at, in the media though, I mean, is it is it important to emphasize? I mean, there are lots of decisions that aren't. They don't break neatly along party lines. Uh, I think the vast majority don't. Um, it's, it's certain, you know, very high level ones that, that I think that people are really paying attention to and sort of has this drama, um, around them. But a lot of them are, are either unanimous or, or have, you know, different alliances. I mean, is there an obligation there to try and emphasize and cover those cases as vigorously, um, you know, to remind people that, that there is actually a lot of agreement and it's not so cut and dried at the, at the court? Well, that's a good question. And the justices
0: themselves are always saying, you know, just look at the percentage of how we're unanimous. Well, I bet when we get to the end of this term, that percentage will have dropped a lot. And the reason we don't spend as much of our airtime on those decisions, even though we acknowledge them, is because those are the ones that truly are more cut and dried and that they don't um they don't inspire the same public passions. They might not be as consequential. Like let's just take medication abortion. That kind of ruling right now that's, you know, so divisive out in the country is worth, you know, writing about and talking about so people understand what a close call that might be. Just like the you know the abortion Dobbs decision, whereas uh, a case that's unanimous that is unanimous because it involves maybe tax law is important to record, but it might not be as important for how people are living. Like each corner of the of of your life is going to be affected by a ruling on tax or a ruling on patents or you know like those those rulings are important, and you know when they come out unanimous, that's great but it's not where the rubber really meets the road for this court.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, we, um, we are still getting lots of great questions coming in. We've got this, um, how many minutes do we have? Just so I know we have like seven minutes left. So I'm going to get you like two more questions. Um, a question here. Sorry. This is a little different. We're going to switch gears a little bit. It's a little more personal. Um, if you had the opportunity to interview a past or present Supreme court justice, who would it be? and what would you ask them? Who's your your dream supreme court interview? Oh, wow. Well, it there would
0: be many. I mean, a bunch of names just popped into my head. You know, like obviously the great chief justice John Marshall. Wouldn't that be great? Wow. But then more contemporary just because I've gone through his papers a lot is William Brennan who I knew briefly, um, but then he, he left the court in 1990. So I was basically, you know, just coming in around then. But I've gone through a lot of his papers, and he's, he fascinates me because he was so aware of counting votes. All he did was count votes. He was just, <laughs> that's what his life was like. So he's interesting. But, you know, I, I uh, Lewis Powell, um, I've done a lot of work in his papers, and I knew him cordially, but I would have loved to have, like spent more time with him. Um, I was lucky enough to spend time with um, Chief Justice William Rehnquist when he he was chief, and you know, and Earl Warren. You know, so like I have no um, uh, again probably I you know thinking thinking of someone like um, like John Marshall or Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes who handled the um, the whole court packing threat back mm-hmm. in the thirties. Like so, those historical features figures would be fun for the historical side, but then for like getting into the nitty-gritty of cases, like someone like Bill Brett. But he has left behind a trove of great papers. So I love going through those.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. John Marshall. I've been I don't even know if I have a question for him. I just kinda wanna be in his presence. I just hang out. <laughs> can, can <Yeah>. we... <laughs> right, right. I just want to <laughs> that's good um all right this person says uh, you covered the clarence thomas hearings with joe biden as chair of the senate judiciary committee any thoughts um on that looking back from today that's a great question because i have written that
0: story a million different ways because i was right there covering it at the time Um, and i was pregnant at the time my daughter who is now 30 years old was with me in utero. And mm-hmm. she has an, a real fascination with the Clarence Thomas hearings, even though she has no interest in law, journalism, or she's a theater kid. And, uh, but she thinks it's because she was like uh, there at the scene. So I, I remember those hearings vividly, wrote about them, and then, um, and then you know, continued to write about them. It, it, it up through uh, Joe Biden's presidential campaign, because I wanted to remind people of what he had done uh, you know, it, come, it comes up a lot, and he has said that he has misgivings for how he handled it. But it is uh, just because he he didn't remember he didn't have other women testify, and the nature of the questions to Anita Hill were just you know kind of crazy probing in some ways, and you know so so there's a lot there was a lot of a circus spectacle to those hearings, as Clarence Thomas you know said, but uh, uh, everybody had some missteps there. But it but Joe Biden was in the chair and uh, uh, probably did the best he could for that moment. But um, but certainly lots of people remember it. And as I said, it did come up in his campaign. And I think that in the you know, he in the end calls Anita Hill around the time that he's um, running for president. And I think I forget I know that, you know, she had written plenty about how she felt about his stewardship of the committee during that. But in the end, um, I think faced with Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We know where she would have cast her vote.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, those videos are kind of hard to watch. I mean, C-SPAN, if those are out there listening, you you can go watch it on C-SPAN. I did, you know, a few years ago and and I was like, oh, gosh, this is really this is really something. Um, Okay, so we have time for one more question. And uh, the last question is from one of our viewers. And they want to know, do you think we will ever see an increase in the number of justices on the Supreme Court?
0: I don't. I don't. And it's because despite the fact that a lot of progressives would like to expand the number of seats or even, you know, impose term limits, there just isn't the political will for that. Even President Biden, who, you know, could potentially have an interest in having a larger court, more appointments and not so lopsided conservative, is against it. And I think there just is not the political momentum for it uh it would take an act of congress to expand the number of seats but an act of congress certainly is easier to get than an amendment to the constitution and arguably it would take an amendment to the constitution to impose term limits on the justices who are appointed for
1: life so right and the only yeah, the only scenario i can think of is if there was some kind of agreement to have you know say democrats appoint one and republicans appoint one and so there's you know you say okay we'll have 11 and each of us gets Gets one because no but no side is going to let the other yeah. side yeah, like, so then what would you accomplish well it just you know we do know that they get you know far more petitions than they can ever really rule on in a you know in, in a year it would actually be more of a more of an issue related to workflow and, oh, uh, and just yeah. sort of the amount of decisions they can make and the yeah. amount of questions that are coming in and so um and so it would be you just accomplish more yeah more stuff getting done more decisions getting done uh, but that would be the only justification for for something like more that. people to talk to me yeah uh, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> more stories to cover more co- you know confirmations for you to to, to report on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well jim thank you so much for taking time out of what i know is probably a very very busy day and busy week yep. and busy month for you uh over there uh, covering the supreme court um we want to thank you so much um she is the author jim the author of nine black robes, inside the Supreme Court's drive to the right and its historic consequences. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Joan's book at your local bookstore. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org events. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.